The ceiling heights vary, so it's just easier to round up to 15, and then it's a one-foot ceiling assembly, two-foot ceiling assembly. It's still enough space, 13 to 14 feet. All right. Anybody else? Thank you. This is, relates again to that issue that you, we were talking, but it's if you go with a uh, lower percentage on whatever becomes the secondary corridors, <laughs> um, then the transparency should also be less because the transparency is a percentage of 75. And so this is kind of just giving a percentage that's about the same out of and we want to go we want to go both higher and lower right we want to go from 50 percent up to 60 for primary oh right right and then right, right. and then so we want do we want to adjust it in both directions depending on was that clear yes yes and <laughs> It's currently 50%. Yeah. I, and we, which and is a little low. Yeah, we've yeah. seen 60 in and other. You had it already in a zone. And you previously had it in the TC zone as 60. Yes. Which seems pretty good, frankly. Plus, that specificity of the 30 inches to 8 feet, that's really important. Mm -hmm. um, I've seen, you don't have as many steep slopes and things as Seattle and other cities where you end up with transparency that's. 15 feet in the air and where you're walking there's none and that's still met the requirement it's got to be sometimes you have to step back if you have a slope so when we question when it, when that space is non-residential like we are defining it and say I want to have in a dentistry and the dentistry is facing the non-primary street how would that transparency look like? Because I would really not want people walking by looking into my teeth. Yes. So that's a really good question. Um, and this, your question actually touches upon something that's been raised a couple times in staff discussions, and I'm, and I'm surprised that it took so long to come out now. And that is, we're not talking about specific uses. You have to remember the building may be there 75 years, and there will be a lifetime of uses in these spaces. So when we say transparency, we mean that it's built with, with the transparent storefront system. Now, whether a particular user for one year, five years, 10 years has the blinds pulled because they're drilling somebody's teeth, that's a level of enforcement I don't think we're going to get to, nor probably want to. But then when that changes to a, book, a bookstore or a coffee shop or whatever, 20 years from now, I mean, you remember, these the buildings are be here for a long time. So we're just trying to make sure that the space is there to accommodate a full range of uses. But we recognize that it may not truly be transparent in any one point in time because they may have the blinds pulled. And even a retail shop can have a, stream, a, a sun guard pulled down if it's facing you know, south or west. So it isn't, maybe transparency sounds like a little bit of a, a, a bait and switch, but <laughs> what we mean is it's a storefront system of transparent glazing. How they use that over time, we're not gonna be able to enforce. I don't think you don't want me to say that you're going to enforce that. I hope, right? <laughs> I think sixty percent is. I think I think it needs to be up to sixty percent. So, do we, through our administrative design review, do we have? Can we? Is that the opportunity for a deviance? I'm thinking, 
the 30 to 80 is great, but if you're thinking of something with a restaurant, like a lot of them have like nano walls now that open, which would go to the ground. And so you wouldn't want them to have to take that extra, it's an energy code hit too. Like would, would we be willing to like take a little bit of it here and put it down here? Can we do that? Or do, do we have to build some flexibility like that in? Yeah, so again, we could craft this as, in a way that you could go through the administrative design review process and get okay. the departure. Yep. It also sounds like what you're, you're, the scenario you're describing would actually provide more glazing. It would provide more, but I think the, it's more, but it might have to come out of somewhere else, like oh. the unit where you would want oh, okay. glazing to be, just because you have those maximums you can work with then. Anybody else? Generally in agreement with this staff's recommendation. <laughs> Great. Live work, residential. Who wants to start? <laughs> Commissioner Brinson. I think this makes sense to me as a transitional piece, right? I mean, I think th this kind of flexibility allows for the unknown. And, you know, I appreciate that Seattle put it in way after the fact. Um, I was a little bit confused by your comment that you're fitting in a live-work two-story unit within that first 15 feet. Is that how it works? <laughs> I just need, no, they're, I just they're need not, to... Oh, wait, I mean, there's a lot of permutations of it. There's some where it's, it, frankly, I'm trying to think one way. I can't picture one here. Where it looks, if you look into it, it looks like an apartment. Okay. Just on the ground floor. It's just a ground and floor. And technically unit. it's live work because like there's a bedroom that's tucked behind, but like your kitchen. Okay. It's like a kid. I had one that was a kitchen in an island. It looked, if you walked in, it just looked like an apartment with 18 foot ceilings. But I there's, other, there's other ones that's where all. it's it's more stacked. Like um, there's a couple on 60 on Roosevelt and like University. There's a bunch of them that are meant as like live works, but they're built where it's like it's a retail space and a little thing, and then it's an apartment like truly above it. Okay. that has its own entrance, which those are a little more successful because they're truly separate. Uh, this actually, um, I just had a thought that maybe I'll take the liberty to throw out there, uh, just a little bit extra thing for us to do, but um, there was a kind of working definition in the presentation of what live work means, and it basically means there's at least one dedicated space to the work, the whatever that might be. Um, which can then come in any version. It could be a mezzanine or a loft. It could be just a deeper space that has the private living space behind it. I mean, whatever the developer wants to do. But that at the storefront, there is a dedicated space that, and what that raises is maybe we need to propose a definition to add to the code of live work, which we kind of threw out an operational one in the presentation, but we could probably um, do a definition that, that states that, that live work, um, you know, there has to be. That the thing is that that would be at the building permit level, like when they're getting their occupants, their tenant improvement permit to become a residential unit. But then when the building permit comes in, the building plans examiner, or maybe the zoning plans examiner, whatever, would have to look and say, oh yeah, there's the space, it's 10 by 10 or whatever. And it's not a kitchen and it's not a bedroom and it's not a, it's just, and it's right there at the storefront. And that's basically all they have to do. So that it couldn't be the scenario where you walk in the door and it's the kitchen because that isn't, you know, will it work? Unless it's a cooking demonstration yeah. <laughs> office, <laughs> which we had one in Edmonds, that's why I said that. I think the other challenge with them is just they're probably locked in as that use. If you're thinking of like a type five, like a wood building, like it's not easy to like 
take over the adjoining one. Like you're, you have some real limits <coughs> to that. You can kind of see that up and down, like 15th and Ballard. There's a bunch of them that are always going to be like a, a 15 foot wide space. Like it's hard to become something different. And I would also say, just from talking to developers, that um, even if, you know, because the way we have it now in most of these places, there is the 12 foot height. Um, or before the interim regs where, you know, it was supposed to be built to commercial standards so that it could be converted to commercial on some future date. And so um, I was very early in my role, five years ago when I was just a baby, I was very <laughs> naive. And I brought them coffee shops and things like that. They're like, you know, because they hadn't even finished building the building yet. But they purchased the materials that they're going to put in. And it's countertops and toilets and sinks and light fixtures. And they're not just going to pull that all out and throw it in the, take it to the dump. They, you know, somebody, some future owner may do that, but it's just like in your own home, when it's time to replace that sink, you get to pick out whatever sink you want, and maybe then you do an upgrade. But most homeowners, I think, generally speaking, don't do the upgrades just because they want to. They kind of need to arrive at that end of life date. And so just to kind of to your point that um, in addition to maybe the challenge of relocating a, this wall or moving things around, it's also those fixtures that they just spent all that money on need to age, amortize. One, of the, one way of thinking about it is when you think of um, older cities that have a crop of older buildings, you know, uh, older homes, craftsman homes, 100-year-old homes, whatever, that are right in the kind of edge of the heart of the town. I mean, you can think of Edmonds this way, you can think of Snohomish, there's a lot of towns that will have the main street and then there's homes in the next street. And you now, now we're talking about 100 years, but you go and most of those aren't homes anymore. They're the law office and the beauty parlor and the flower shop and the whatever that they've converted. So as market demand for commercial increases, then maybe the space won't grow much, but it becomes a great space for small businesses to open. Um, and, and hopefully they've been a small business all along, because that's the point, but, but even more so be a business with employees and all, but in a small space. So it's, it's about, um, still providing the space that meets commercial standards, but allowing for a transition in those less commercial secondary quarters that we will define in that upcoming oper uh, exercise. I guess presumably they would follow the same requirements as the depth we were just talking about, though. Because that's the other thing I've noticed is some of them just end up being a little bit small and some not. That's why they become more of an apartment than I think. Yes, yes. I think that's what we're hearing is that now live work as a use. There's a definition that gets added, and and maybe that's limited to the secondary corridors. That's that's what the proposal is. Then on the list, of, but yeah, the dimensional requirements stay the same. Um, mm -hmm. I think. Yeah. I have a question, and I'm maybe just not quite understanding, or I'm very naive. Is that if we're talking mixed use uh, and we're talking about ground floor commercial that's below a big old apartment or multifamily, you know, multifamily, um, how did, can't the person that works there just rent an apartment in the building and not have to have a specific space? I mean, is, I don't quite understand how that works. Well, it's a different living arrangement. So, um, and I've visited these two. You, you say, Commissioner, that you've been, that you lived in one or you visited one, and I've visited them as well. So it's a different arrangement where the person is paying um, their total rent 
not for two places, so that they, they don't have to have a separate business place that they're paying rent for, but they can just have one place that has the dedicated working space, and then they can live behind it or above it, depending on the configuration. So they're basically getting the benefit of one rental payment for both living and working, and it's in one unit, as opposed to living upstairs, but then also renting something downstairs. Now, people may do that as well as they grow or as their business grows and they want to take over the whole space because they can then hire an employee and start putting desks in or whatever. But at least in an interim, you know, beginning period, uh, people, especially if it's a, just a sole operation, you know, a person who prepares taxes, a person who does your accounts, a person who does wills or, uh, you know, retirement counseling or uh, acupuncture studio. Or, I mean, there's so many one-person things that just they don't have the money and the overhead in their business to have two rental payments. The other way to look at it too is our zoning right now, um, If you, it's like if you're working from home basically, but our zoning right now, correct me if I'm wrong, Andrew, uh, is that that's like a business, it's a home occupation mm -hmm. and it actually limits like if you're having clients visit you or having like the number of deliveries you can get a day, so it lets you have a commercial presence and still live there in a more legal yeah. Kind of way. I, I mean, I've seen them. It makes sense, but uh, I'm, I don't know. I, I'm just thinking that there, there must come a point when, after a certain amount of units, you know, when you have a, a building with a hundred units, um, and then you still have a live workspace in the commercial area, that to me doesn't make sense. In a smaller, smaller configuration, maybe. I don't know. I just I I can't picture it, and I just don't I I can't see that you know if you have this huge apartment complex with the ground floor floor commercial, and then you allow that one person to have then that live work space. That doesn't that doesn't make sense to me when you have so many apartments. Just a, a it's good. Just saying that that's one thing I haven't understood yet. Chair, I think it, it it's actually a combination, right? It's like, and I think that's, I'm struggling with this too after I've said this. It's really ground floor residential is what it is at that point. Right. I mean, because there's not, it is a specific physical layout that allows certain things like clients and deliveries, et cetera. But I could just as easy live there and sit at my desk and work from home all day. Like no one's, Andrew's not going to show up at my door. Um, it'd be great. You could bring me coffee. It'd be awesome. Um, but, and so that's, that's the pieces. I mean, I think I see your point of this would allow for, I think this meets a little bit in the middle of my issue around building today for what we need tomorrow. This allows you to build today, build these spaces. And at some point, not in five years, but at some point when there's a turnover, there's an end of useful life, et cetera, there is a new envisioning of those ground floors. I think in that way, we have to be a little bit careful because these are residential units which are desirable by developers to be built. And so it's very likely that that's all we get. Is my, it would be also my concern in that space of not getting true commercial and only getting these sort of someday eventually maybe they turn into commercial if every star has aligned. Patrick, remind me, I thought, didn't Seattle limit the number you could have in any one building? It could have been like at some point in history. 
point. Well, the current regulations, I think, are that these secondary streets, these side streets or whatever, it can be lit work. Okay. I do have another idea that I can float if that's okay. My other idea is that we're already talking about potentially having a lower percentage by 15 percentage points of the ground floor residential on whatever we designate as the secondary streets. Um, maybe instead of allowing, again, this is only supposed to be transitional for say five years or so, but maybe instead of allowing all of that to be potentially live work, maybe we say half of it could be live work and the other half has to be truly commercial. Mm -hmm. So we're sort of, it's the notion of it is to help the developments happen because they don't get financing for this space if it's not on a truly commercial street that they have to sort of throw that away. Um, and um, and recognizing that live work does in fact work <laughs> when it's truly live work space. It does not, you know, um, and it will eventually transition, but maybe it's not all, maybe it's half or some other number. We could come back with with kind of a pick list on that on that issue if you, if you want to consider allowing some, but not the whole amount on that ground floor. I think I just realized that I misunderstood the five years piece. You're talking about only allowing it in new developments for five years, not only allowing it in, in buildings that are built for their first five years. Only allow After only five allow years of having these regulations in place, the live work allowance, if it is deemed by the city, would go away and we would have commercial in any new building after that point. That's the concept today. To That's me. your concept, okay. And you, you might craft that in a different way. You might say after so many buildings have been built, maybe okay. five years, you suddenly have the biggest boom in your city's history and you want it in three years. But you could do it that way, you could do five years, you could do whatever you want. This was, the notion was to try to do something transitional. Okay, I was misunderstood. I was thinking about it from the sort of first five years of the building's life and then they were required to change. So thank you. I have been Thank but you. We could also correct the same thing. Maybe we come back <laughs> with a pick list on this one where you say live work yes or no as a concept. If so, all the ground floor and secondary, half the ground floor, two thirds, one third. I mean we could just sort of set up a pick list on that and have the code language, you know, in in waiting for that. So yes. so you don't have to decide that right now, maybe. Is that does that work for us? Can we do that? I'm okay with transitional. Uh, now the fun begins. <laughs> <laughs> Parking. Who would like to begin? I am so excited that you wrote down no parking. I, I, I'm for it. I'm part of my reason of asking the question, though, originally about some of the existing buildings. Is like I think if you start doing a new building with commercial, like that makes it kind of unfair to the existing commercial buildings. But that's neither here nor there. I, I think it's good because especially as you think of like some of these side streets. I'm thinking of I think it's Linden right over there. Like it helps like start to break down our kind of semi-rural right-of-way usage by people where we have signs that say no parking on the street like it really encourages street parking and us actually using the right-of-way that we have so i think i think it's good it also just makes it cheaper and it is a different way of working i mean i think julius I, julius and i probably walked the most out of all of us but someone i walked to do most of my errands so i think it's kind of nice to have that encourage that opportunity to have walkable things
Commissioner Galuska. Um, I've, uh, I've seen other jurisdictions which um, allow if, if your front edge has street parking that you can count that street parking towards your commercial uses, um, which I, I feel like in the case of that coffee shop would probably make the difference that, you know, typically you can't count. And I, I'm actually fairly loath to count on street parking in general, um, but if the, if, if the applicant builds the fringe improvements and I'll even throw a bone to the public works director, if they would maintain them as well, then you could have that street frontage, which is really what the parking people are gonna want for that coffee shop. There's a lot of uh, pedestal development now where, yeah, the place has parking in the garage somewhere, but it's honestly, because of the design, it's like a pain in the neck. And I've also uh, been chewed out by some apartment person who lives in the apartments about how, what are you doing in here? Like, well, places are supposed to park in here. Um, so, I mean, like, I, th I think that helps encourage that the commercial uses use that um, and, and have term limited parking, you have two hour parking, you have whatever parking. Um, so uh, th that's one, one direction we could look at. Um, and I know there's gonna be, a, we, we've talked a lot in the past about just the general parking rates um, and talking about reductions to those. Uh, but I, I think that in addition to looking at counting those uh, street frontages. Um, and as far as counting the on-street parking to count toward your minimums, I believe we've looked at that as an option in the past, and both um, our public works as well as city attorney's office aren't big fans of that approach. We could definitely float that again and see, but generally speaking, a private development is essentially able to look at the public right-of-way in terms of meeting their uh, on-site requirements is sort of how it's been viewed uh, on the other side. And so that's kind of where we, I think one of the reasons we landed at just no parking. Granted, there would still be opportunity here for shared parking. So uh, I think there's a lot of literature out there to show that even if we lifted all of the parking mandates citywide, developers are still going to be building parking. It's just going to be more market driven. And so um, like going back to the case that I was mentioning earlier where there was the small coffee shop, um, you know, they perhaps still could have come up with an option to have some shared parking worked out between the tenant and themselves versus just the city coming down with a very prescriptive, you need to provide these spaces separate from everything else. And so it's not to say there won't be on-site parking provided, it's just that we won't be in the business of regulating it. Mm -hmm. One other thing I wanna add is that for larger uses, um, not just these three to 4,000 kind of square foot, that that's about the amount that you'd see in a, you know, a building that's 100, 150 units, that kind of bread and butter sort of mid-rise building. Larger buildings or complexes that might have larger tenants, it's very unlikely a developer would not provide some parking just because they recognize they've got big spaces or a, big, a larger amount of total space that they need to obviously um, tenant. And in fact, um, I've learned from some developers that they'll complain about the city's parking requirement and finds out that their financing, the bank, ends up being the one that they have to Please with the parking and not so much the city. So that's an interesting thing. In Seattle, there's been some places that have gotten rid of parking requirements and certain, certainly downtown, Pike Pine Quarter, near transit station, a lot of places don't have parking requirements anymore and they still have parking in the buildings. Um, and a lot of that's because of the financing.
so I realized I incurred, I was excited about street parking too. Do some of those roads, the secondary roads we're talking about, does our right of way kind of design assume that if a new building is built, that there's like a sidewalk and a planning strip and parking? It's going to vary by the street, uh, street to street. And so we could, you know, that was one of my early comments as we were scoping this amendment early on is that we, you know, once we kind of identify those locations, we do the next level of analysis and make sure that the street type is going to be conducive to support the land use that we want to have and the, the character. And so that's wide sidewalks, that's landscaping, and on-street parking, I think, is vital there, too. And is that an, an alternate path, too, like, where we have to look at, like, a, and those streets, like, if you can't change the street right of way, technically, it's like a, a weird setback where they have to, like, give you that land as part of that and kind of adjust it. it. Like, if there's additional right of way needed yeah. eventually, yeah, that, that could be one. I think, generally speaking, a, a lot of our right of ways are really wide, even though, you know, the improved portion isn't always that but oftentimes there's a lot more real estate there than what it looks yeah commissioner brinson i don't think this is an issue in shoreline but i know it's been a long conversation in seattle i'm assuming that when we are thinking about child care that child care in the city is primarily happening outside of these mixed-use buildings um because we have such low density development generally, but if we get to a place at some point where we start to think about needs for additional childcare centers, they come with very specific sort of development requirements and parking requirements, et cetera. And so that was just sort of in my head when we were talking about no parking at all, because you can't build childcare if you don't have drop off spaces, according to state law. So just a thought. Fun facts that are not related too much at all. It's actually a great question, though. Andrew, do you know if we allow that as like a, a, a use permitted outright, or does it have to be in conditional? Having designed daycare centers for a long time, most uh, cities you have to do like traffic studies and stuff. Yeah, for us, it depends on the number of kids, and so there's two classifications. I think it's once you get into 12 kids and up, it kicks you into that higher level of use, and so there's a little more review, and more parking, and and all of that. But yeah. That's fine. I'm mostly in favor of no parking. Um, I do. I have concern for um, people with disabilities that uh, maybe that for whatever reason they can't take transit um, or some other, um, you know, or part of their part of the ride in their wheelchair to these newer commercial developments is you know, bumpy at best. Uh, I don't know, it's just um, looking out for the, the disabled community. So um, that's that's a concern of mine. And I don't have an answer, but um, I, I do, uh, you know, I think about like Seattle. I mean, I think about some of those areas that I travel through on my way to job sites and um, there's, it's it's accessible for you know 98.8% of the people but there is a percentage that it's not accessible to and there's several of those pockets and um, it would just be something that I would uh, want to just not 
that that's why I say I'm mostly in favor of no parking. I do have a response to that. Um, if you think about where I used to work in Edmonds, <laughs> old downtown Edmonds, there's no parking for the most part right. because they're old buildings and there's a couple that have parking here and there. And so that issue is addressed by every block has a handicapped parking space, you know, at the curb mm -hmm. that is signed and painted on each side so that those businesses know that they have a handicapped space um, that's going to serve that block. Yeah. So that's something, you know, as the commercial development uh, grows that the public works uh, folks may want to analyze, you know, where do we start putting in, uh, and you may already have some, but certainly putting those in as, as right. areas become more urbanized. And that's how the older cities uh, do it. Uh, Snohomish is like that. Mm -hmm. Friday Harbor is like that. And I, there are a lot of uh, the places that are tight, older cities that they don't have parking in each of those right. businesses. Yeah, I've seen that too, and I think that that would be a great thing to look at. We can take that up with our parking, I think, enforcement and, and, and public works team to find out, you know, if there's provision for that or plan. But we're, 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 as a city, we're entering that stage of or age where we are going to have parking enforcement. Uh, so we'll be thinking more about that on-street parking and I think managing it better, which, again, I think will help this whole conversation where yeah. if it's managed and sort of priced appropriately and, and monitored, we'll have the turnover and the vacancy availability of the spaces, which is, you know, pretty, pretty important for this conversation. And I just want to just add, there's one example in here, and just that one example, lots of meetings, phone calls, emails, and kind of grinding away at it and trying different things and ultimately for nothing and it's just one and in my five years here i can't even tell you how many parking conversations we've had <laughs> oh, and have resulted in not getting what we want because of that you know immovable object and so uh, yeah just not to belabor the point but it gets in the way of a lot of things <laughs> So, sorry about that. So in addition to parking, even when we have these multi-use locations, there's a need for drop-off zones. Uh, Uber Eats. So we, when we don't account for those, when we are doing those developments for simple drop-off stuff, um, it, it's a challenge. Yeah, so in addition to, to, to handicap handicapped spaces, I think you also need drop-off zones. Yes. And that's a great point. We can get back to you about that, too. Find out what, what we can learn from the, the experts on that side of the city hall. Okay. Any other comments? Parking? Okay. So far, so good. You guys getting what you need from us. So was the direction there no parking? Okay. The direction Just is no parking. Just wanted to confirm I was saying yes. that right. <laughs> <laughs> You're saying Santa Claus is real for us. <laughs> I want to qualify that. We said no parking, but we need accommodation for the disabled, mm -hmm. and we also need to accommodate the kind of commerce that we have where you have drop-offs. It could be Amazon drop-offs, but where you have those drop-offs. So in other words, we can't say we want it to be livable and attractive 
and then have amenities and we've, we lose those basic amenities, okay. yes. And I'll just say that we have a really responsive and just a great team. You know, the people that work in City Hall are really collaborative. And our traffic engineer, um, when we had a potential tenant for that geo space who asked about, you know, parking looks like it's always taken. And she said, well, that's fine. We can put a sign up. You know, we're not, we won't do it now because there isn't a retail tenant in there. But as soon as they're there, we can have that sign that says two hour parking or 90 minute parking. You know, hmm. she was just very, we have that flexibility and we have good people on staff who are able to be nimble and respond to those things. And we have a sign out there by the end of the week in order to manage it for the right real uses that we're seeing as they change. So that is a, a benefit. Height bonuses. Do you need an explanation again of this one, or is it clear? It's a little confusing. I'm, anybody? Anybody need a refresher? We've talked a lot about height bonuses. <laughs> I guess the question I have about the height bonus, it's, did we have a slide in here, it was just in our packet that had the neighborhood heights already? That had like that chart. Andrew, is that in the packet or is that on the sign? I know I saw it. Is I feel like a lot of our heights are already, our height limits right. are pushing right. what right. code, right. kind right. of building right. code, yeah. would support for what the type of building that we're going to get. Right. There. Thank you. Exactly. So is it? Should we just raise the height limit and just tell them this is what we want, rather than? We we talk about incentives and bonuses a lot, and they just get confusing. I mean, we could use just different terminology and achieve the same outcome. Um, yeah, because I feel like every every amendment we bring forward lately is some type of an incentive or bonus, yes. or and so maybe we just say developments providing this type of space. Can, you know the the base height is this and so it's not an incentive we're not using that terminology it's the same outcome but uh, it does yeah I hear you it it just kind of muddies the waters a little bit uh, personally I'm I would like to start to move away from incentives and bonuses if there's things as a city as a commission and as a council that you all want to see, then we should just write it into the code, and that should, should just be what it normally is. Normally in our code, it's written like the base, the height limit is this, and like there's certain appurtenances that can go above it, like solar panels right. and things like that. I'm sorry, I was reading these wrong too. These are with the 18 feet. I have to do some math real quick. I don't know. I think I would just say the height limit is the height limit. Nice. Please put this thing in. But. I agree with a removal of some of those confusing bonuses, don't get me wrong, but we are a society that always looks for what is in it. As that's how we have been raised uh, with all the commercials that we do, what is in it? And what makes really shoreline attractive, it's because we say, this is what you get when you do this, this is what you get when you do this, this is what you get when you do that. That carrot actually works, 
but uh, putting together a matrix of what combine the combinations of incentives to get you to where you want to get is mind boggling. <laughs> so that much I have to say, but it really does work. So I. I guess the other way to ask the question, so you guys, when you did this, you just said you were asking for 18 feet, and so you did the math originally and said there's going to be 10, and then there's five. Like, I guess that's my point. Like, should we just increase the height limit five feet? Like, because that way you're still getting the four-story building they kind of assumed they were getting, but you're not having to do a complicated arrangement to get there. It's just... Right, just to clarify. So, yeah, the current language, as you said, is the bonus for eight feet because the requirement is 18 which is nominally eight above what a developer would do if they didn't have to do ground floor commercial. But since we're talking potentially about only 15 feet, only, it's a, it's a decent number, decent amount, 15 feet, we were just trying to equate the bonus or whatever we end up calling it to be five instead of eight. So we could either state bonus or we could say that the base height limit is um, whatever it is, you know, and it'd be more than one because there's different heights in your zones. But I think the key issue is if it's okay to go from eight down to five, if we're going to require only 15 feet versus 18 feet for the height of the ground floor. It's the same math. Mm -hmm. It's like whatever's above 10. Instead of eight above 10, it's five above 10. But then the other issue of, and this then does kind of become a bonus and is not so clearly mappable or whatever, is for grocery store ready space that it would just be case specific. They come in and say, we need 20 feet for or Whole Foods or whatever, and then you'd say, okay, fine, you get whatever, ten, up to 10 more, whatever that is. I guess that was a question I had on the grocery store specifically, is like, if you think, again, if you're thinking in context of the building code, there's a finite, I mean, it's probably gonna be a concrete podium, but there's still a finite height. Like, is there another, that's the thing where if we truly wanted a grocery store, is there another incentive we could give them instead of the height? Because <laughs> that's really a special use that's the height is predicated on that very special use as opposed to like a general commercial use which would fit within anything. Mm -hmm. I know I said I hated bonuses in the last four <laughs> But it seems you asked for a case to case. It seems like that's a good like, administrative design review <laughs> deviation. I mean, that would be another approach is we identify certain types of uses may extend above the base height through an administrative design review process. It's one additional step. The reality is a lot of these bigger projects go through those anyway. There's oftentimes something they're going to want to depart from, and so this could be one. Commissioner Brinson. So I have a question about the intersection of grocery stores and no parking. <laughs> I just need to say that out loud, right? Because most grocery stores would have parking. And if we're saying no parking, are we assuming that the market and the financing and the tenancy would drive the requirement for structured parking? I mean, I can't imagine a grocery store sort of agreeing to being in a place with no parking. So the market will handle it. The last thing you said is the most important. <laughs> the grocery store, the grocery would store wouldn't agree to it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. I mean, I'm, in downtown Vancouver or something, it'd be fine. But yeah, anywhere else, no. 
Okay. That's right. That's a good point about the no parking. And I, I think, again, I think it, Seattle could be a current code or an old code. It used to be that a retail space up to like 1,500 square feet or something was exempt. 4,000. 4,000? 4, is it 4,000? Okay. So maybe we have to put that in there just so you don't get like right. 8,000 right. square foot because that is a lot of people. Uh, there's a new Safeway mixed-use project being built in my neighborhood on top of Queen Anne right now, and they're providing much more parking than the code would require because Safeway requires it. As they say, the boys in Oakland require it. <laughs> it's the board of Safeway board is in Oakland. Anybody? Eight to five is eight. Eight feet to five feet is good. The grocery stores. I know. <laughs> exactly. No more bonuses. No more Okay. Fitness center allowance. I'm hearing you all want to ditch it, correct? Is that the deal? Yeah. Yes. I agree. <laughs> yes. I think if you continue to allow it, you're going to end up seeing like your street has like seven. I know. <laughs> yes. Eliminate. Yes, Commissioner Callahan. You made that point in the staff report about um, how this also raises issues about like shared parking, you know, can that kind of situation work? And this just makes me think like, just keep it separate um, and not try to, because I, I, I feel like this was sort of like throwing a bone, like, hey, can you do something for the neighborhood? Um, and it just seems like, no, we just, we need there to be commercial space and that needs to be, the lines need to be clear. And I think this is just a good example of why that's needed. Just to be clear for anybody who's listening, um, regular public commercial fitness centers do count. It's just the fitness right. center, fitness, whatever, maybe centers, not the right word, but the fitness uh, room or whatever for the multifamily building doesn't count as commercial. I did actually have a question, Andrew. And do we, is if do we in the multifamily structures require them to provide an amenity amenity space that this fitness center would meet that requirement? They yes, yeah. So it doesn't necessarily have to be a fitness center, but yeah, some type okay. of amenity space. But it could still go on the ground floor, just not in the sixty percent. It just can't count. Right. Okay. Okay. That was it. Was that the last one? Mm -hmm. I knew we would. <laughs> I wasn't worried. <laughs> so I took the survey today. I have a question. Do we have a chance to amend it? Because I think the one thing that I noticed was on it, it asked about, would you like this kind of, but it didn't actually offer like any specifics for type of businesses. Because I think that would be interesting, especially if we look at like encouraging developers to build out certain type spaces. Like, what kind of business do you want? Because I think it just asks, like, how often of the time do you leave the city to do, like, essential things or something? And will we or can we get um, the results 
of the of this survey and outreach. Yes. At, so at a future I'm meeting. Have it for the next meeting because it's the day it ends. Uh, right. So yeah, I'm I'm kind of looking to Patrick and Nate in terms of our timeline for the October fifth meeting. Um, I think yeah. we were shooting for some form of first draft amendments to present at that meeting. Um, I don't know if that's still sounding feasible. We'll, we'll aim for that. We're holding the October 19th meeting um, as an if necessary, but you know, I think the direction was pretty solid and clear tonight. And so we'll aim for October 5th and maybe if we don't hit the mark, it'll be October 19th. Um, and related to the survey question, it ends on the 5th, so we probably yeah. won't have the ability to, other than maybe just a high level, we looked at it and it looks like this, but if we do have the 19th, then of course we'd have a, a document to share of what the survey results are. And hopefully by then also, because I think we're shooting for about that same week for the developer meeting. Um, so we'll be able to share both of those results uh, if we meet on the 19th as well. Okay. Excellent. Yeah, we could, yeah then I'm just thinking the staff report would mention that there was a survey <laughs> and then maybe we could show the some some mm -hmm. results on screen but it's just, it's hard for me to figure out how that works. Yeah, one of the things this I've done a lot of these surveys and um, I think it's a good one I like your your addition um, one of the things is we have a lot of open-ended questions and those aren't as easy to display because then you might have 200 different answers right. and so then you have to do some you know word charts or whatever those things are called or you have to do certain things to, to to summarize that versus things that are just all wrote yes no or multiple choice you can just show all the little graphs and immediately see the results so I don't think we can probably have that ready when it's through the fifth for this meeting on the fifth yeah. because it would just be like uh, we got it we could say how many people responded I guess and you know we did get I think 30 or 40 responses right away in the first right. 24 or 48 hours and that was just with us putting it on our website and it was announced in currents that it was going to be on the website but uh, and then the chamber smiling chamber of commerce put it out to their subscribers and so we're off to a good start mm -hmm. um, that was a few days ago but I know uh, we started out starting strong share it on your Facebooks if you want to <laughs> great anybody have any final questions or comments We all did a very good job on this. And our presenters, uh, Ms. Hoaxman. I'm wondering if um, our speaker could, or our public comment person could go now. She's been emailing me, and so I told her maybe after our presentation and discussion, we'd have a moment for her. Absolutely. Okay. Absolutely. Uh, Ms. Chu, you are unmuted. Thank you. Um, I just wanted to check in with the Planning Commission about two dates that are coming up. Um, one is uh, 2030, when um, electric vehicles um, will only be sold. New, new, ve new vehicles would only be electric, um, which means that there would be a um, big infrastructure change in terms of people needing to plug in their vehicles overnight. Right now, um, my hybrid takes five hours to charge and it gets 25 miles. Um, so most, and I know like Tesla's take about 
maybe two, two and a half hours or so to charge. Um, so I think that there's a big, my perception is there's a big issue with um, buildings, especially multifamily buildings, not having enough um, infrastructure for people to be able to charge their their electrical vehicles, um, especially with 2030 only being seven years from now. And um, and these buildings that they're, they're putting up now don't, you know, it'd be ideal for them to start putting them, you know, to have infrastructure for electric vehicle charging for every single vehicle, because in 2035, fossil fuels for vehicles, um, that's the date of when fossil fuels will not will no longer be available for um, vehicles, probably maybe residential vehicles, maybe commercial might be. So I think we need to really start thinking about um, more electric, um, EV chargers or more electrical ports in new buildings and then retrofitting existing buildings. And then the big issue is what about the electrical infrastructure? What about when, um, you know, certain times of day during peak hours when they tell us, you know, don't use a lot of electricity because people might need their air conditioning. How is that going to affect our electrical vehicle charging and the demand of that? Um, I want us to start thinking about that. So um, there's solar panels that people can put on their homes. This is also for residents, people who own their own homes to have um, access to be able access to electricity or some kind of power source to be able to charge their their vehicles and also big multifamily buildings and also work buildings, people were places where people work. So they drive their car to work and then they might need to charge their car so they get back home. Um, I'm not hearing anything about that and it's coming up really quickly. And also with the comprehensive plan that's gonna be for 10 years, um, I haven't heard anything about that. One thing I, um, one possibility is in terms of um, having enough electricity is resiliency so that we never run out of electricity. Um, and one way to do that is batteries, backup batteries in all buildings, um, commercial buildings, and also in um, homes. So I understand that there's um, some grants that Shoreline might be able to apply for um, from the Department of Energy and the Department of Commerce to fund resiliency um, of batteries for buildings. And also if we can put some provisions um, regarding these, these up and coming dates into the master plan of, and for new, especially for new buildings and then retrofitting them, maybe applying for grants to retrofit the buildings as well and providing programs so that every single person can charge their vehicle overnight um, when they come home and also for businesses. Ms. Chu, that's it, thank you. Oh, uh, Ms. Chu, would you please for the um, commission say your name and oh, yeah. your um, city is, of residence? Oh, this is Nataline Chu and I live in Shoreline at the, in the um, Echo Lake neighborhood. Thank you.
Thank you. All right, and thank you, gentlemen, very much. That was a great discussion. Thank you for all the information. All right, moving on. We are at unfinished business. Is there any unfinished business tonight? New business tonight. Anybody have any reports? Mr. Bauer. Um, I just have one announcement. Um, there's a, a groundbreaking ceremony that's in the works tentatively. Um, Oh, I wrote it down somewhere. I think it's um, October 4th being planned. Um, this is a tentative date up in North City at the mixed-use site that we were just talking about um, with the ground floor fitness level. But um, at <laughs> any rate, more. yes, plus more, yep, um, with the restaurant-ready space as well, which will be, you know, a big win and the first project going through with the ground floor commercial requirements that the commission studied a couple of years ago um, so stay tuned for more details but yeah um, it sounds like we'll have potentially some council members or council member at the event and would love to have um, some planning commission representation as well so once we know more we'll send it out to you all excellent thank you anybody else um, the agenda for the next meeting. Could, oh, I'm sorry, Miss. Um, I have Commissioner a random, Manson. maybe unfinished business okay. comment that I just received. Um, related to the public comment we just received, Seattle City Light is looking at EV charging stations across their entire service territory, not just the city of Seattle. So they are thinking about things up here as well, since they are our electricity provider. Excellent. Yeah. Excellent. Real time information. <laughs> I like it. Um, I know we've seen it on the screen and we've had it in our staff report, but what is the agenda for the next meeting? Yeah, so the next uh, next meeting will be a discuss discussion of the 2024 comprehensive plan update. So we'll be briefing the commission on a couple of alternatives for draft vision statement as well as updating you on kind of what we've been working on since we were last before the commission we have a strategy mapped out for the next wave of engagement and we'll be uh, briefing you on the racial equity analysis that was done as part of the middle housing work uh, last spring and first part of the summer so a lot of updates on the 24 update um, and then also potentially the ground floor commercial, but we'll see. Um, and if not, we'll be looking at the October 19th meeting for that to bring this topic back to you. Okay. Thank you. Anybody else? Any last words? Thank you, everybody. Great work. Thank